And for the last few weeks, I've been uh, sharing with folks here on the Monday nights doing this, this talk series on the Four Noble Truths, this, the Four Noble Truths being one of the foundational teachings that you find in probably almost all the schools of Buddhism. And, you know, a few weeks ago I went over the first noble truth, the first noble truth being it's simply the statement, there is suffering. So I always like to distinguish it from life is suffering. It's not that life is suffering. There's, everyone can probably agree there's times of joy and happiness in our lives. But it's more using this medical model and where we want to begin with a medical pro model is what's not working? What's, what's the problem here? What's the disease that we want to, to, to examine? And what is it? It's suffering. There's suffering. And also it's beginning with something that probably all of us can relate to. Is there anyone here who has not suffered? And I want to point out, this is, I think, really important for the spiritual path to see we're, we're beginning with something that, that is within our subjective experience that, that you can relate to. And that's why there's sometimes been this question about, well, should Buddhism be in the category with other religions or not? Because it kind of starts in a different place. It starts with something uh, concrete in, in terms of this. And then the second noble truth is, well, we got this disease, we got this problem going on, so what's the cause of it? And, and what I spoke about around that is how the, the cause of that is, uh, of suffering is craving. I need to say just a little bit about that in terms of that. When we say that craving, or you could say reactivity of the mind, and what I mean by reactivity is when you are obsessively grasping on to something, or you're obsessively trying to push something away, or just completely checking out, it's kind of reactions in the, in the mind that create suffering. And so it further clarifies really what we're exploring here in terms of these teachings over these weeks. It's, it's our subjective suffering that we're exploring. How does this mind add more trouble to the situation in front of us? And how can we deal with that trouble? It's kind of like, like what we're invited to become curious about. And around the second noble truth, I, I do want to add one more thing, because today is such a great day, right? It's a, it's a commemoration of Martin Luther King Jr. And to me, what's so powerful about this teaching is that I can begin to see how the cause of suffering is something that happens on both a personal and collective level. Like personally, you probably know the experience of all the things that would come under this word craving. Craving is kind of a, uh, a tricky word because it encompasses much more than what we usually think of it. I think it's easier to think of reactivity. But when you think of reactivity in your life, it would be like subtly wanting something, subtly wanting something, that sense of, well, if only, if only it was just like a little bit warmer in here, or just, just a little bit cooler, then, then everything would be great. That subtle sense of always something not all right. But then it can be the extreme, too, of, of not the, the subtlety of a kind of obsessive not liking around that, but a full-blown hatred or a rage that really harms oneself and others. And I'm sure many of you personally have experiences of the subtle and the, and the gross in terms of suffering in your life. But on the collective level, we can see the same thing. It's like these, these, uh, these, this reactivity of the mind and the implications that it has for the society that we live in. So I, I think on this scale, I think of something like implicit bias, 
where I kind of have this notion, well, I kind of like everybody, you know, regardless of skin color or how old they are or, you know, what their age is or anything like that. Like, I like everybody. But then our minds, so often our minds have these biases that play out. And of course, on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, the, the one I just want to kind of name is, is around racism, how our minds are racialized. And it's always a tricky subject, just maybe because of the history, you know, of, of how this country has been founded and what's, you know, fueled this economy for so long is, is, a, uh, is a system based on racialization. And this has been really important for me to see this dimension of reactivity in my own mind, how it plays out. Because what I've noticed is that if you grew up in this place that we currently call the United States, I think it's pretty tough. I don't even know if it's possible to grow up here and not have a racialized mind, a mind that's been racialized in some way. You know, as... Um, Martin Luther King says, just in, in light of this, we are not makers of history, we are made by history. And I think this is one of these things that, that comes to light from this practice of seeing how this mind is made by history. And then I start to see how that plays out. And then when I do a practice like this, I, start to, I feel that, that it can start to un, un, unhook from that history, like the history of, of racism. So again, we have that, that subtlety of implicit bias, not be, not, not, might not be aware of it too. You know, full-on uh, racism that's rooted in, in hatred. And here we have this path that, that uh, leads us to start to address this kind of suffering. So again, the first noble truth, there is suffering. Here's the disease. Second noble truth, the cause, this reactivity of the mind. And then tonight, third noble truth, it's a little bit happier, I hope, which is, well, well how do we deal with the disease? Well, it's the, the, uh, the cessation of the cause, because once there's no, much, no more reactivity, there's freedom. And this is, this is really what this is all about, the heart of this path. The one quote from the, the Buddha around this, he says, so this spiritual life practitioners does not have gain or honor, it does not gain honor and renown for its benefit or the attainment of virtue for its benefit or the attainment of concentration for its benefit or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is the unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of the spiritual life, its heartwood, its end. This is the third noble truth. It's this, it's the deliverance of our hearts. It's the freedom of the heart and the mind. And what I want to point out is how simple this definition of freedom is. So when the Buddha talks about this quality of freedom, he defines it in what we've just been talking about it. What is it? It's a mind that is no longer reactive or kind of using classical Buddhist terminology. It's a, it's a heart that is free of greed, hatred, and delusion. It doesn't get, it's, it's, it's a mind that just doesn't get lost in reactivity anymore. 
It's being able to walk in the world in a really radically different way. And which, with each of these noble truths, there is a task. And what's the task? The task is to realize this freedom. <clears throat> and the, the term of exactly what we realize is this term, Nibbana. And Nibbana is just as the, the term that's used in the Pali scriptural language. People usually know the, the Sanskrit version much more just because of that rock and roll band, right? Nirvana <laughs> and now all kinds of things. <laughs> it's nothing like rock and roll to popularize things. Tonight, I, I want to give some um, notions of this to one, hopefully make it relevant for your life and also to see that there's even in our troubled, difficult lives, we can get tastes of this freedom. But I also want to tell some stories that might be out of our realm a little bit. And there's a couple of reasons why I want to do that is that sometimes I think this happens. I, think it's, I don't know if it's something that happens more in this, this modern world, but, but it, it feels like we, uh, there can be so much of a le leveling the playing field or leveling everything that we can forget the vast potential of the human mind. And so I just want to share that edge of things too. But I think it's also important to maybe get a sense of how you can get a taste of freedom in your life, how it's happening in your life. And this first notion comes from the, the great Thai forests um, monastic uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa. And he uh, wrote about something called Nibbana for everyone. And I really appreciated it because he really pointed out that during your day, probably each day there are moments where there's no reactivity in your mind. Can you notice those moments? Whether it be you're just standing outside and you're feeling the crispness of the air, but there's no reactivity. You're just being with it. There you are. There's a quality of presence and you're open to that experience. And you might even be open to it even if it's unpleasant. Oh, there it is. Oh, there's an openness there. Here I am with this experience. And okay, then the next moment you're thinking, damn, it's cold out here. But, <laughs> but there's that moment. And the problem is, is how often we miss that. Like here are these beautiful moments that are happening every day of your life. And it's just like, eh. And part of the practice is, can you savor those moments where your mind is not reactive, where it's not wanting anything to be different in a moment? And it's actually content, even if it's for a few seconds, to begin to notice that and to really savor that, because that's an opening to this taste of freedom. And it's so simple just to notice it, just to open to such beautiful moments. And it is true, it's so much easier to talk about than do. And, and one of the reasons is because uh, we have, we could call this uh, uh, what's wrong perspective. And for good reason, it's something that's allowed our ancestors to survive and bring us here. Because if they're always concerned about what's wrong, then they probably lived a little bit longer. So maybe the people that were really having the full taste of Nibbana kind of died off kind of <laughs> later on and now we're just trying to find it again. <laughs> so of course there's a purpose for it, but, it, but, it, but it's a training. 
<laughs> so we have to have this respect for our ancestors who didn't make it, maybe. <laughs> Can you start to counteract that in your life? To first start to notice the what's wrong perspective and to start to open up to these really these beautiful moments of our lives. So these tastes, these tastes of freedom. Yet I think there's another way to taste this freedom too, and it could be freedom within your troubles. And I don't know if you've experienced this. For some of you who've meditated for a while, you probably have had this experience a little bit. And sometimes what can start to, to happen is when we start to get mindfulness established or a quality of presence, there can be this sense of like we're sitting in the eye of the storm, like the storm is swirling about us, but, but there's a, 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 a place where we can rest where it's okay. Oh, wow, there's fear here. Interesting. Fear is happening right now. That's okay. It's just arising. It's just passing away. It's just a, a bunch of sensations, maybe some thoughts. And I, I, actually, I'm okay. There's this emotion, but I'm okay. Oh, interesting. Oh, there's this unpleasant sensation going on that I'm reacting to, that I'm really not liking. And also, I'm okay in the midst of that. To me, I think this is also one of the, the, the potentials of this practice. Can you begin to taste freedom within your difficulties? Where is that place for you? Can you find the place of resting and simply being aware of what's going on? I find it so relieving in the midst of my difficulties. And also it helps counteract something that I, I, my mind starts to do, especially if I get this narrative that freedom is about a mind with greed, hatred, and delusion, from greed, hatred, and delusion, or free from reactivity. Then when there's reactivity, it can be like, damn it, you know, here I am, suffering again. <laughs> I'm not doing it right. <laughs> And it can be great to have the simple turn as, I don't even need to get rid of that. I just need to have the turn, the turning inward that I've been talking about week after week of noticing. Or as I was speaking about this weekend, for those of you on, on the retreat, just turning the rudder slightly into noticing, into resting, into being aware of what's going on right now. And to taste within that, there's a part of your experience where there's no suffering. So this can actually be really interesting to be curious about that when a challenge is going on. So, you know, you're upset about something or you're feeling a little anxious and the anxiousness feels, right, unsettling. But sometimes there can be the sense of that that which is aware of that is okay. It's just, it's just watching it go, go on. Like the example that's often given is it's like a mirror so a mirror, like, it can reflect all kinds of things, but it's not tainted by all those things it's reflecting. It's just reflecting them back. There could be kinds, all kinds of horrible things it's reflecting, but it's the mirror itself is not tainted by it. It just reflects. And in the same way, awareness might just be aware of it without being tainted by that. So for some people, there's a taste of that. Oh, so, so not only can we get a small taste of this, you know, when the mind is completely free of this, but maybe even in the midst. So freedom, freedom in these different ways, freedom 
those moments where there's contentment in your life, those moments where there might be a quality of peace in the midst of your challenges. This is the deliverance of the mind. So I, I want to come back to this definition again, that, that freedom is a, a mind free of greed, hatred, and delusion. And with all good spiritual traditions, there's all kinds of debates about this. You know, as I think I've said this before. In Tibetan Buddhism, I love this saying. They say, where you find agreement, there you find fools. <laughs> I love that. Because what does it speak to? Multiplicity. It's actually okay to have different viewpoints. I think this is really so important for our community here is that, yeah, that's, that's where, where things are rich. And so for, for some practitioners, there's a sense that this is really possible to have a mind that's completely free of reactivity. And other practitioners are like, well, it's more archetypal. It's something that we aspire to and we use it as an archetype that maybe we can't attain, but, the, but our hearts are always going in that direction. Um, so I think our job is you got to figure out which one is right, you know, and then report back on Monday night. <laughs> but I, I want to share with you some stories that I, I've been moved by around this. And the, the first one, first story is about um, a monastic by the name of uh, Luangpar Liam. And he was a student, uh, some of you know this teacher, Ajahn Chah, one of Ajahn Chah's students. And he's still alive. He was, uh, I think he's still the abbot of uh, Wat Bapang uh, Monastery in Thailand. And he comes over to a monastery in California, usually once every couple of years. And this is what he shared. I think this happened in 1969. And so I want to share with you um, just as his description that happened one night when he was practicing. And there was a turn in his practice. He started to, to, to frame his practice a little bit differently for himself. And he said to himself, you know, this is how I'm going to kind of frame what I'm doing. He said, he said to myself, okay, we don't practice for anything. We practice for the sake of practice itself. Whatever it will lead to doesn't matter at all. So this is kind of the frame, which I think is so much about, can get a feeling of being mindful, is just, just touching this moment not even needing it to lead to anything. So here he is practicing in this way. And he said, keeping this teaching in mind, I kept on meditating. Normally I'd sit in meditation till about 10 or 11 p.m. and then stop to have a rest. But on this day, I continued sitting for about eight hours without moving. <laughs> it's a little bit different than Monday nights. Or making the slightest change in posture. And with this, with this experience of peace, the mind changed. The feeling of peacefulness shot up and pervaded throughout the whole body as if something were taking hold over it. It felt cool, a coolness that suffused the whole body, so very cool. An experience of the whole body complete, becoming completely light and at ease. This experience continued on throughout the whole year, not just for a day or two, in fact, it has continued on unchanging for many years, all from that one go. There is the state of coolness, as if in the brain, whether sitting or lying down, coolness in every position. All worries, concerns, or similar thoughts from the thinking mind 
are totally gone, truly quiet, no wind blowing at all, just ongoing tranquility and peace. And he says it feels like there are no proliferations of the mind. And he describes this further. He says, seeing somebody, I just had the feeling of seeing them as absolutely as they are. To see a person as simply a person, just that much. No beautiful persons, no ugly persons. People simply would be specifically the way they were. This is the kind of peace and tranquility that arose. says, this same state lasts on and has been stable and continuous and without changes. So a colleague of mine went to Wat Babang, his monastery, to meet Ajahn Liam, Luangpur Liam. There's a few different ways of, you know, giving him these titles. And so he went to this monastery, and um, so he went in, and there was a, a monk, an older monk, um, sweeping the monastery kind of uh, grounds there. And um, so he said, you know, uh, I really would like to pay my respect to uh, Ajahn Liam. And, and the monk stopped sweeping, and he said, oh, it's me. <laughs> and he said it was like the most unassuming person that you would just like would disappear in a crowd. There wasn't anything charismatic about him, just a really simple down-to-earth person. So one story. And then another story, just to give a different flavor, and this is about um, uh, a practitioner by the name of Deepa Ma, Deepa, Deepa Ma Barua, who was um, a householder woman, so a woman who was never a monastic, and she uh, grew up in uh, she grew up in Kolkata, and then went and moved to Burma and practiced uh, diligently, and then moved back to to Kolkata. And um, in the the space before she started to practice, in the space of a few years, she lost uh, actually two of her three children to illness. So really. Devastating. There's, as many of you know, there's nothing like losing a child, to have a child go before you like that and to go through that twice. And she was uh, devastated by that, and so was her husband. And her husband was so de devastated by it that a year later he died. And then uh, she was just paralyzed by grief. I mean, really, her life was going downhill, and, and somebody said, maybe you should try meditation. And she really, uh, really engaged in it in this way that really uh, touched her heart in the midst of really, I just want to point out, really deep and difficult suffering. Really a big challenge. But beginning to unravel some of what that mind was adding to this huge loss. And, and she was uh, really, uh, was known to be this exceptional um, 
exceptional practitioner, really seen to have really deep, deep freedom. And, you know, it's said that just being around here could be so powerful. And I want to share with you uh, just a story from Jack Cornfield about hanging out with Deepa Ma, just the effect of, of being around somebody like that, the kind of love. She was really known for the kind of love that she could, could, could emanate. And I think that's the thing that I really want to share is that, you know, a, a mind that's free of reactivity, what's left? You know, really, in terms of this, it would be a heart that's, that, that, that can be filled with love, can be filled with compassion and kindness and joy and contentment and happiness and laughter because it's not, it's not confined anymore. And I think she was a real embodiment of this quality. And it was really so powerful. So Jack Cornfield was in uh, uh, Calcutta uh, paying his respects to her. And, and this is what he said. So he, Went and, go, went and paid his respects to her. And, and afterwards, with great care and attention, Deepamba stroked her hands across my head and my whole body. She blew her breath on me and recited these chants of loving kindness at the same time. At first, it seemed like a very long prayer, but as she continued blessing me, I started to feel better and better. And after 10 long minutes, my whole body was tingling and open. I felt as though a loving grandmother had sent me off with her good wishes, wishes amplified with special yogic powers. I was in bliss. I walked out into the sweltering, sweltering Calcutta street and caught a taxi to Dum Dum Airport. That's its real name. Dum Dum <laughs> it took two hours to get there with the driver leaning on his horn the whole way, dodging between rickshaws and traffic, cows and fumes and trash. At the airport, I went through the tedious Indian customs, hours of standing around while officials looked through my stuff, grilled me, and stamped my documents. Eventually, I got in the airplane for the three-hour flight to Bangkok. Bangkok was also hot and busy. The airport had long lines and more customs. Then I spent an hour and a half riding to my hotel through the slow, crowded Bangkok traffic. All the while, I could not stop grinning through the custom line, lines, plane rides, taxi rides, and traffic jams. I sat there with this huge smile on my face. It didn't wear off. I went to sleep smiling and woke up smiling. I smiled continuously for days from that experience of, of being blessed by Deepa Ma. So who knows? Who knows what the powers of these hearts are when they're really freed? You know, what is this potential of a heart that's truly free? What does it bring <coughs> into the world? How does it interact? You know, these kinds of gifts that maybe are possible. <coughs> and again, maybe in our lives we won't become like Deepa Ma, but there's a way to taste into this, into this, to notice even just the brief moments when the heart <coughs> feels free of reactivity, because it primes us for deeper senses of, of freedom. So let's just uh, take a minute or two to stretch our, our legs. You might want to stand up and then we'll begin to sit together.